Welcome. You are listening to the Fat and Furious podcast. In this podcast series, your host, Steve Bennett, father of seven, best-selling author and adventurer, will be joined by 23 of the world's most forward-thinking medical professionals, doctors, authors, and top nutritionists, where he'll share the truth behind living healthier and happier for longer. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Robert Lustig. Robert is Professor Emeritus of the Pediatric Division of Endocrinology at the University of California in San Francisco. Robert specializes in the field of treating hormonal disorders in children, and he's very interested in how the brain controls hormones and how hormones control the brain. He was head of the University Pediatric Obesity Program for 17 years. Robert has fostered a global discussion of metabolic health and has exposed some of the leading myths that underlie the current pandemic of diet-related diseases. He believes that the food business, by pushing processed foods loaded with sugar, has hacked our bodies and our minds to pursue pleasure instead of happiness. This, he believes, has fostered today's epidemic of addiction and depression. Robert is a global best-selling author, and his presentation on YouTube, Sugar the Bitter Truth, has been viewed 8.9 million times. Robert, thank you for, for joining us. Uh, it's been a, an ambition of mine for many years to have a chat with you. And when we both spoke at the PHC uh, Earlier in the year, we, we sort of, our paths didn't really cross for very long. Uh, I wasn't there for very long. <laughs> <laughs> you flew in and flew out, but your, your speech yeah. absolutely fantastic. I want to spend most of the time talking about the book, The Hacking of the American Mind, and explaining to people the difference between pleasure and happiness. But before we do, for the sake of the UK audience who maybe, maybe don't know you as well as, uh, as you know in America, give us your background story, you know, where you've come from, you know, what drives you, uh, your experiences, and, and then we'll get on to some of the books that you've written. Okay. First of all, thanks for having me. Second of all, it's not the hacking of the American mind. It's the hacking of the British mind. It's the hacking of the French mind. It's the hacking of the German mind. It's the hacking of the contemporary mind. Um, this is a global phenomenon, and um, there's a reason why this is happening, and we're going to you know, explore it. So, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, like, how'd you get here? And I, to be honest, I'm not even sure how I got here. I went where the data took me. And so I'll, I'll sort of do the really, really fast version. So I'm a neuroendocrinologist. I treat hormone disorders in children. And I'm interested in how the brain controls hormones and how hormones control the brain. Uh, I was the head of the UCSF pediatric obesity program for 17 years. So how I got here, uh, I can sort of sum up in like one word uh, sentences. I went from obesity to insulin, to metabolic syndrome, to sugar, to addiction, to technology. And that's how I got here. So throughout the hour, we'll link all those dots up. And let me just quickly say at the beginning, for those that haven't seen your YouTube presentation, first of all, where have you all been? Uh, 8.9 million people have watched you on YouTube. 
uh, with your brilliant uh, sort of presentation, Sugar, the Bit of Truth. Uh, I've watched it probably three or four times, so maybe it's eight million, nine hundred thousand, less three or four times because they're me. Uh, tell everybody about Sugar and the Bit of Truth, and then we'll get to hacking the American mind. Yeah, um, so in 2007, I gave a talk at the NIH. Um, they asked me to speak at a, uh, the, their 100th anniversary of public health. And uh, they celebrated you know, the gains that they had made in um, environmental exposures and public health on the first day. So like for instance, lead poisoning and pollution and asthma. And the second day was for the new challenges. So it was going to be about metabolic syndrome. It was going to be about ADD and autism. So they asked me, what did I think was the biggest exposure that led to metabolic syndrome? And they expected me to come up with some chemical in the water or, you know, some pollutant or something like that, you know, that they could normally, uh, you know, potentially just get rid of. And I was sitting there getting ready for this talk. And I thought to myself, what are the two diseases that children now get that they never got before? And the answer was type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease, these two. And I pulled out my biochemistry text. And I said, all right, type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease. And I looked at what normally causes those two things, which was alcohol. And I said, all right, well, what's like alcohol? And then it was just right there on the page. Fructose. Fructose is metabolized in the liver, just like alcohol. And I said, oh my God, here it is. It's just staring me in the page. And, and, and that book was you know, published in 1971. Yeah. And the funny part was, I was a nutrition and bio, nutritional biochemistry major in college, and I knew it back then. And then I went to medical school, and they beat it out of me, and told me it was all about calories. So I went to this meeting, and I said, I think sugar is the reason for this. And I explained why, and I showed the mechanisms and the pathways. And I gave my talk, and then it was the bathroom break, and nobody came back. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, that's weird. <laughs> I went outside to see why. And everyone was basically, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, he's right, he's right. He makes, this makes perfect sense. And they said, you have to go tell everybody about this. And this is the NIH say. And that's, uh, sorry, in, in the UK, the NIH is the National, the National Institute of Health. It'd okay. be like your MRC. Okay. Uh, and that was like the start of it. And then in 2009, I gave this talk to the general public called Sugar the Bitter Truth, you know, as part of uh, UCSF's mini med school for the public as a public service. And I basically connected the dots. And now there are 9 million views and sugar taxes around the world, including at the, in the UK, because the science is there and it makes sense. And people are starting to understand that it makes sense. To be honest with you, it makes sense to everybody except for one uh, faction. Who would that be? <laughs> that would be the food industry. 
And they're <laughs> battling back like crazy. So this has become a public policy and also now a litigation issue. Sure. And for those that um, haven't heard the phrase metabolic syndrome before, which I think was, was it Raven that originally in the state sort of coined the phrase and worked out about insulin resistance. Maybe explain a little bit more what metabolic syndrome is, please. Sure. So metabolic syndrome are the constellation of diseases that travel with obesity. So type two diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease. Turns out these, this is now 75% of all healthcare costs in both the US and in the UK. Well, now, people, and, and, and you, you put a large percentage of that down to what we're eating, consuming? So people thought this was about obesity. Turns out it's not about obesity. It is true that obesity travels with these diseases. I don't argue that. It is true that obesity is a risk factor for these diseases. I don't argue that too. But normal weight people get all of those diseases as well. In fact, clinical depression causes weight loss, but causes these diseases through the same mechanism, just not through subcutaneous, you know, the fat you can see. Turns out this is the fat you can't see. It's the fat in your organs. It's the fat in your liver. And there are ways you get it. And it turns out sugar is the most potent way of driving fat in your liver, which drives all of these diseases. And now we've demonstrated the mechanism. We even have the molecule, we even have the intermediate by which sugar is metabolized that causes all of these diseases. It's called methylglyoxal. It is an intermediary metabolite of the uh, uh, sugar fructose and it poisons the liver cell and in the process drives all of these chronic metabolic diseases. So. We now have molecule to disease, disease to medical calamity, medical calamity to agricultural disaster, agricultural disaster to planetary uh, uh, immolation. I mean, basically, we've gone from molecule to planet with one concept. And, you know, this is worrisome. This is something the you know, public needs to understand in order to be able to turn this around. And do you think the, the only chance of reversing this is the education part, which then might change consumer habits, and only by changing those consumer habits with knowledge, we can maybe get out of this mess? Well, so I think it has to start with education. Okay, education is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Okay, education has not solved any substance of abuse yet. Did Nancy Reagan's just say no work? We have an opioid crisis, all right? The fact of the matter is, that's the definition of addiction. You can know that whatever it is you're addicted to is ruining your life, your health, your family, your community, your economy, and you are powerless to do anything about it. That's why it's addictive because education alone can't solve it because the biochemical drive to continue to consume is too great. So for everything that's addictive, whether it be substances or behaviors for that matter, like gambling, shopping, pornography, social media, 
internet gaming. Um, for everything that's addictive, we have personal intervention, which for lack of a better word, we can call rehab. And education is a primary driver of rehab, but not alone, not a, a successful alone. And also societal intervention, which for lack of a better word, we can call laws. Rehab and laws, rehab and laws. We have rehab and laws for tobacco, for alcohol, for street drugs, heroin, morphine, et cetera. Okay. For sugar, we have nothing. Now, we have rehab and laws for gambling now, but for internet gaming, for social media, for pornography even, really, no rehab and laws. So um, we still have a problem. And, um, you know, linking the mechanism to the policy is absolutely essential because you have to bring the uh, public along with you in terms of being able to do something about it. And so you have to educate first, but ultimately the education, as I said, is necessary, not sufficient. You can't educate your way out of this problem, these problems. Ultimately education allows you to you know, soften the playing field so that you can ultimately do something societally that does work. Okay, so I think we're going to get to your book, Hacking the American Mind, faster than we thought we would, because I think from reading your book, what you're saying is that addiction comes because we're chasing too much pleasure and not chasing enough happiness and the confusion of what is pleasure and what is happiness. Is that correct? Right. So, so the reason I wrote the book is... Um, you know, Fat Chance, my original book, was about diet and physical health. Hacking is more about diet and behavioral health. And as I was, you know, doing the research for Fat Chance, it was very clear that we had this burgeoning literature on diet and behavioral health. And we had this addiction and depression, you know, uh, mega crisis going on, you know, not just in the U.S., but, you know, really throughout the world. Today, 4.4% of the entire world has been diagnosed with clinical depression. That's a 20% increase in a decade. That's fine. The question is, you know, where does this come from? And, you know, what are we going to do about it? My thesis in the book, and the reason I wrote the book, is because I believe that we as a society have lost track of these two positive emotions, pleasure and happiness. We think they're the same. We've been told they're the same. And I think we've been told they're the same by the people who want us to buy stuff to, quote, get happy. Because they have something to sell. Hedonics sell. In fact, four out of the top 10 exports of the United States are hedonic substances. Oil, corn, soy, and sugar. So this is a gravy train. This is a juggernaut for the industries that are involved in selling them. And so they want us to buy them. So they tell us these things will make us happy. But pleasure and happiness are not the same. In fact, I would argue that they are diametrically opposite. They seem like they are related. They're both positive emotions. We like them both. So like, why should we care? Well, I'm going to give you seven differences between pleasure and happiness that I outlined in the book, and then I'll explain to you why we should care. So pleasure is short-lived. 
like a meal, you know, for an hour and get over it. Happiness is long lived, like for a lifetime. Pleasure is visceral. You feel it in your body. Happiness is ethereal. You feel it above the neck. Pleasure is taking. Happiness is giving. Pleasure is experienced alone. Happiness is usually experienced in social groups. Pleasure is achievable with substances. Happiness is not achievable with substances, which of course is why those substances are there for us. The extremes of pleasure, whether it be substances or behaviors, and like I said, substances could be nicotine, cocaine, tobacco, alcohol, street drugs, heroin, morphine, sugar, or behaviors, uh, shopping, gambling, internet, social media, pornography. In the extreme, all of these lead to addiction. So there's an aholic after every one of those. Shopaholic, sexaholic, chocoholic, alcoholic, etc. But there's no such thing as being addicted to too much happiness. And then finally, number seven, and the reason I wrote the book, pleasure is dopamine, happiness is serotonin. So two different neurotransmitters in the brain, two different sets of receptors, two different mechanisms of action, two different regulatory pathways. These are not the same. Two different areas of the brain where they work in. So like, why do we care? Like, so what? They both feel good. And in fact, that's kind of what the public did was say, so what? Well, I think it matters a lot. And I think that one of the reasons we're in this boat is because we lost track of this. So, And you can kind of understand why we lost track of it, can't you? Because even many um, dictionaries, many uh, Google uh, places where you got to find out what words mean confuse the whole thing up. I totally agree. I couldn't agree more. And actually, you know who did it? Probably the food companies? Nope. The pharmaceutical companies? Nope. You know, originally, <laughs> you know who originally coalesced these two concepts of pleasure and happiness? No, I don't. Right there in London. Really? If you go to the center of the University College London campus, there is a statue of the guy who screwed it up. Wow. His name is Jeremy Bentham, the founder of UCL. That it's all his fault. It's all his fault. So maybe we'll take responsibility in Great Britain for getting happiness and pleasure wrong, but then again, you gave us Ansel Keys and we screwed the whole diet. <laughs> So, we, so maybe we're even now. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so Bentham turns out he was an odd bird, to say the least. Um, he had Asperger's, you know, I mean, in retrospect, we can diagnose him now. Um, and he went around trying to quantitate happiness. And he put metrics on everything as to happiness. And he very, very uh, famously equated, um, uh, he said, you know, the avoidance of pain is paramount, but there are lots of ways to avoid pain and pleasure and happiness basically amount to the same thing. Wow. And unfortunately for us, um, uh, his uh, work got promulgated and it ended up becoming the basis of the German stock market. And I um, don't know why, but it did. And then the Americans, when we developed our stock market, we 
based hours on the German stock market. So basically money became the major issue and money became sort of the source of happiness. Up to that point, that you know had not been sort of the, the case. Then the next thing that happened was 1929 and the Great Depression. And we needed, in the United States, we needed a metric for being able to figure out whether or not we were doing better to climb out of this. And uh, that, that same year, a metric called GDP, gross domestic product, was <laughs> advanced. And the uh, formula for GDP is consumption plus investment plus government plus exports minus imports. So consumption is the primary driver of GDP. Now, the guy who uh, uh, invented this uh, formula, Simon Kuznets, very famously said that uh, you cannot infer the health of a population from its wealth or its income. So he cautioned people from, you know, using this inappropriately. Didn't matter. You know, just like we conflated and confused pleasure and happiness, we conflated and confused health with GDP. And, you know, I can prove to you GDP is not the right answer because GDP is food plus pharma, whereas health is food minus pharma. Sure. So it's very clear that health and GDP have nothing to do with each other right off the bat. <laughs> but nonetheless, that's what we did because, you know, we're screwed up. Okay. And then in 19, the 1970s, we screwed it up even more. So up to that point, we were basically all Keynesians, you know, John Maynard Keynes, another Brit, um, who basically understood the difference between pleasure and happiness himself and, you know, wrote about it consistently. And then came along uh, the University of Chicago School, led by a guy named Milton Friedman, who basically said that it, corporations are basically people. And of course, you know, we've codified that now with Citizens United. And the job of a corporation is to generate happiness. And of course, the way to do that is to generate as much money as possible. Again, and by, you know, making money the issue. And, you know, up to that point, Keynesian economics was regulated capitalism. And what Friedman said was anything that detracts from the production of money uh, was basically the antithesis to happiness. And he uh, advocated unregulated capitalism, which is, of course, is what we have today. And in the process, what we have done is we have made everybody fat, sick, stupid, addicted, and broke. Uh, because we have peddled hedonics, because those are what sell. And we have made everybody miserable and sick and we have basically um, destroyed the economies of countries all over the world through chronic disease. So the question is, is this okay? Well, and, is, and, yeah. and what are we going to do about it? Yeah, the answer is definitely no, it's not okay. And uh, yeah, books like yours really bring that home. I mean, I'd never, you know, you, everybody knows that phrase, you know, money can't buy you love. Um, and, and everybody knows lots of phrases. Money doesn't really make you happy. I have sex. You know, I mean, you can you can buy you some pleasure. Yeah, 
but it can't buy you happiness. And, um, you know, people don't recognize the difference. And by seeking these short-term dopamine hits, they uh, are actually doing themselves damage. So the question, you know, so this then becomes a scientific argument. Why is dopamine bad when we always thought dopamine was good, right? Yeah. Dopamine is what gets you up out of bed in the morning. The whole concept of reward is necessary for survival of the species. After all, if there was no dopamine, there'd be no sex. And if there was no sex, there'd be no you know, babies. And if there's no babies, there's no human race. All true. I don't argue that. Very, very true. Wrong. Can I just jump in there, though, Rob, and just say for those that are maybe one step uh, removed that haven't yet quite understood the difference between dopamine and serotonin, can you just quickly explain that these are two processes that happen in the brain what those processes do and how one is linked to short-term sort of pleasure and one is linked sure. to long-term happiness for me, please. Very good, very, very important. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter. It is a chemical that neurons make that tell other neurons what to do. They are released from one neuron, go across the synapse, the little cleft between neurons, bind to proteins on the next neuron called receptors. So the dopamine binds to a receptor like so. And in the process causes that neuron to fire. And in the process of firing, we get emotions, we get behaviors, we get pleasure. So dopamine is the pleasure neurotransmitter, it is the motivation neurotransmitter. It is the positive reinforcement neurotransmitter. It is the neurotransmitter that basically tells our brain, this feels good, I want more. I want to do this again. So it, dopamine is the source of habit. It is why you develop habits of various sorts. So it's not that dopamine is not important, it is important. And it's not that you can do without dopamine, because if you didn't have dopamine, you would be a sloth. You would have no reason to get out of bed. You would have no reason to do anything. So dopamine matters, but here's the problem with dopamine. Dopamine is excitatory. So it always excites the next neuron. When it's released, it excites the next, but my receptor excites the next neuron. Now, neurons like to be excited. They like to be stimulated. That's why they have receptors in the first place. But Neurons like to be tickled, not bludgeoned. Chronic overstimulation of any neuron leads to neuronal cell death. And we know this because I take care of kids. I'm a pediatrician. I take care of kids in the neurointensive neuro care unit who are having chronic seizure disorders, you know, are in status epilepticus, nonstop seizures. We have to put these kids into pentobarbital coma to stop their seizures while we get a handle on it. Because the longer they seize, the more neurons they're going to fry and the more developmentally delayed they're going to be. So chronic overstimulation of any neuron is not good, leads to neuronal cell death. Now, can I just add one quick question there then? So I used to drink too much and it was a problem to stop drinking so much. And yet in the early days, I could have one glass of wine and I didn't want a second one. Then a few months later, it was two glasses of wine and that was enough. And then, but then that didn't do anything. And then I'd need half a bottle of wine, then a bottle of wine. 
And then eventually when I went, I've got to stop doing this, a bottle of wine was doing nothing for me. Is that the same right. sort of thing? And is it a bit like almost yeah. insulin resistance? If you keep shoving you know, the, the sugar at the fat cells, eventually it says, hey, I've had enough. It's kind of sort of, yeah. So basically, look, neurons like to be excited. That's why they have the receptors, but they don't want to die. <clears throat> so neurons have a plan B. They have a self-defense mechanism. What they do is they downregulate the number of receptors. So it's less likely that any given dopamine molecule will find a receptor to bind to. So more dopamine, fewer receptors means less signal. Less signal means less benefit, less buzz. And so you end up needing more and more to get less and less. And that's the phenomenon that we call tolerance, which is what you just described. So here's how it works. You get a hit, you get a rush, receptors go down. Next time you need a bigger hit to get the same rush, receptors go down. Then you need a bigger hit and a bigger hit and a bigger hit, just like you described. So huge hit to get nothing. Now you got tolerance. And then when the neurons actually do start to die, now you got addiction. And the thing is when neurons die, they don't come back. They're gone for good. So when you kill those neurons in that reward center, that means you're never going to get the gain. You're never going to get the amplitude of the response that you originally got, which means you're never really going to get the same pleasure that you did before. And this is, of course, the re reason for recidivism from addiction and why people go back to using because they're trying to get back what they knew they had and they can't get it. And so they're miserable and they try again. And then, of course, <clears throat> they end up using a dose, say, of opioids, for instance, that you know, gave them that level, which turns out to now be too much because now they're, you know, they've been weaned off. And then that's too much and then they die, which is the reason for all the opioid overdoses is because of this recidivism and the fact that these neurons are dead. So we know this. We, you know, this is not you know, new data. This is not rocket science. You know, we, we understand this. So dopamine kills neurons. Dopamine is excitotoxic. All neurotransmitters that stimulate neurons are, in the extreme, excitotoxic. So that's not good. So serotonin, on the other hand, this contentment neurotransmitter, this feels good. I don't want or need anymore. I'm zen. The zen neurotransmitter, the contentment neurotransmitter, the relaxation almost neurotransmitter, okay? It's not excitatory. It's inhibitory. It inhibits the next neuron. It keeps it from firing. So if you're inhibiting the next neuron, do you have to downregulate the receptors? You're not trying to protect yourself because, you know, there's nothing to protect from. So serotonin does not downregulate its own receptor. So you can't overdose from too much happiness. But there's one thing that downregulates serotonin, dopamine. Right. So the more pleasure you seek, 
the more unhappy you get. So the more rewards you're after, whether that be alcohol, whether that be drugs, whether that be sex, short-term rewards, too much food, big meals, sugar rushes, all that, if you're constantly searching for more and more reward right now, it actually down-regulates happiness in the long term. Exactly. And so if you don't know the difference between pleasure and happiness, and pleasure is cheap, you're going to overload on that because you can and make yourself extraordinarily miserable. And so addiction and depression are actually two sides of the same coin. And they're driven by the same five changes in our environment, which have occurred over the last 50 years. They are technology, processed food, sugar, sleep deprivation, drugs. All five of those are dopamine stimulators. All five of those drive reward. And all five of those also lead to metabolic syndrome, all these diseases, which then leads to low serotonin. Then add some stress on top of that. And what stress, by affecting an area of the brain right here in the front called the prefrontal cortex, stress puts that prefrontal cortex to sleep. Stress basically tells your uh, inhibitory center, your executive function center, your Jiminy Cricket of your brain, the part of your brain that keeps you from doing stupid things, tells you, don't do that because you'll pay for it tomorrow. That's what the prefrontal cortex does. But stress puts that to sleep, basically. I'm only worried about today. I'm not worried about tomorrow, okay? I am now a lizard because there's only today because you've basically taken your prefrontal cortex offline. That's what stress does. What that does is that revs up dopamine even more. And also uh, cortisol, the uh, the stress uh, hormone, reduces the receptors for serotonin, thereby making you even more unhappy. So addiction, depression, driven by the same phenomena, those five things that have happened to our environment, add some stress, mix, you know, add water and stir. And that's what the, you know, that's what the paradigm is. And unfortunately, not just the food industry, but the technology, the gaming industry, you know, uh, virtually, you know, every, uh, you know, hedonic uh, uh, substance or behavior industry has figured this out and are peddling it and we're getting sick. Well, they, they, they figured it out, but what I read in your book was very interesting. They, they've obviously at a high level figured out rewards, uh, pleasure and happiness are different things, but they're trying to sell, use the word happiness when really they know deep down what they're selling is pleasure. So we Absolutely. have the happy hour, the happy meal, this is all things that sort of you've quoted. So I don't want to say happiness, Coca-Cola's campaign for 10 years. You know, I love to show a, a slide of raisin bran. Okay. You got raisin bran in the UK? No, no. Huh? I don't no. think so. No. No, you don't have raisin bran? Okay. Well, anyway, it, the, it, it's got raisins falling from the sky, and the, uh, the tagline is, the road to your happy place is paved with raisins and flakes. Wow. It, and pavement. Ah, right. So basically telling you if you're fat, it's your fault. Yeah. 
fact of the matter is the raisins that are falling from the sky are not the raisins in raisin bread because the raisins in raisin bread are coated in sugar on huh. purpose to get you to eat it. The good news is that here in the United States, raisin bran is now not heart healthy because of that added sugar. So they've had to remove the claim, the health claim, because it has been demonstrated that they were full of crap in the first place. Crikey. I tell you what I did when uh, I read your book. I got a pen and paper, and just the week before, I was talking to a, a professor about the pH scale of water, and maybe we should be having you know, more uh, alkaline water than acidic. And I went, pH. I went, oh, okay, pleasure, happiness. So I drew this scale, 1 to 14. And I sat down, I've got seven children, and I sat down with, with uh, not the youngest, but the next four. You've got, you got seven children? Yes, I know what causes it now. You're still uh, vertical? <laughs> I think I've been, I've been seeking too much pleasure and not happiness. Although that may be one example where you eventually get more happiness, but maybe not short term. Uh, but <laughs> I, I sat there and I said, right, let's think of lots of different words. And we flicked through the book and we looked at, you know, uh, things that make give you pleasure, some that give you happiness, and we tried to put them on the scale. Uh, and it was really, really interesting. And we did come up uh, with a couple of things that sort of fell into both camps. Um, but pretty much you could separate them. So, you know, that short-term happiness of a big meal, at the time you feel it's not happiness at all, so it's pleasure. You think you're getting loads of pleasure, but actually it's not doing you any good because then you put on weight. And, uh, and it's so interesting how you see some people binge out looking for that short-term pleasure when they're even on a diet chasing, you know, the happiness of, you know, being trim and, and looking healthier for longer. Um, so tell us a little few, a few things about what we can be doing, Rob, to sort of cut down on the dopamine and actually encourage more serotonin. Right. So in order to turn this around, this, you know, global, uh, uh, chronic disease, addiction, economic, climate change debacle, because climate change is related to this as well. We need to tamp down our dopamine, not get rid of it, but tamp it down. We need to up our serotonin and we need to reduce our cortisol. Okay, those are the three goals. If we do that, we will get healthy, we will enjoy our lives, and we will solve virtually all of our biggest problems in our society, all at once. Because really, it's one problem, not four. Sure. So what can we do? Well, the one thing we can't do is rely on government to help us. Because government is actually addicted to the money that the hedonic substances bring in for them. And they are all paid off by those industries anyway. So don't expect anybody to help you out of this, at least not anytime soon, because, you know, that's not, they're not going to do it. So you got to do it for yourself. So what can you do? In the book, I describe four ways, all clinically proven to work, all efficacious, all mechanistically driven, all evidence-based that will do all three of those things. That is 
tamp down your dopamine, up your serotonin, reduce your cortisol. So it is doable, but, oh, and, and more importantly, they're all free. So anyone can do them. Doesn't cost a dime for any of them, okay? But you have to want to do them. So here they are. I call them in the book, the four C's. Number one, connect. And that does not mean Facebook. (laughs) That means face-to-face, eye-to-eye. Now, you and I are connecting right now, but I'll be very honest with you. Connection over a digital uh, landscape is not connection. Okay? And there's a reason it's not connection is because I can see your eyes, but I can't actually see you. Because when you make it two-dimensional, it loses something in translation. We are talking about face-to-face connection, eye-to-eye connection. So why is that important? Turns out you have a set of neurons in the back of your head called mirror neurons. Okay, they reflect oh, can back. Can you say that again, Tim? You just, uh, oh. Rob, you just broke up there. Could you repeat yeah. that one again? Yeah, we, you have a set of neurons in the back of your head called mirror neurons, mm-hmm. M-I-R-R-O-R, okay? And you can record from them, you know, so, you know, they're, they're separate neurons. And what they're doing is they're transducing the facial expressions of the person you are talking to and turning those expressions into your own emotion. You're basically taking information from another person and you're adopting it to alter your own emotion. We have a name for this phenomenon. It's called empathy. Okay. This is how you transmit empathy, is through face-to-face interaction. Not voice-to-voice interaction, but face-to-face interaction. How do we know this? Paul Ekman, famous UC Berkeley psychologist, went to Papua New Guinea back in 1968. They'd never seen a white person, ever. They, had, they, they didn't speak English. They had the exact same facial expressions for the same emotions we did. Well, where'd they learn them? They'd never seen a white person. Because it's hardwired. It's baked into our DNA. Everyone's got it. We always had it. Okay? It's how we communicated with each other before there was language. So this is as old as we are. The point is, when you are face-to-face with another person, when you're engaging in conversation directly with another person, in whatever venue you're doing, you are adopting their emotions. And this is necessary because this is what drives up serotonin. A way I like to describe the difference between dopamine and serotonin and pleasure and happiness is religion. So religion is a great way to explain how this works. There are 4,200 religions on the planet. Why? I guess because in different areas that are remote, they they come together in communities and villages and start to share a common belief. So the one thing that all religions share in common, there's only one thing, a meeting place. Interesting. And that's the serotonin. That's very... Once the rabbi or the priest or the imam, you know, starts to speak, 
That's the dopamine. <laughs> All right? Yeah. And that can incite you to riot and a few other things too. All right? The point is that, you know, religion is serotonin and dopamine at the same time. Sure. And, you know, if we harnessed the, the right thing, we'd be a lot better off. Unfortunately, you know, that... You oh. know, on the demagogues, point, you know, think otherwise. <laughs> on this point, then, the meeting face-to-face, -face, uh, the World Health Organization some 50, 60 years ago said there's actually three pillars to health, uh, and one of those was social interaction. And they probably didn't know the technical things you're talking about now, but is that one of the reasons why social interaction is so powerful for our health all around empathy? Absolutely. So what I can say is that um, you have two parts to your uh, autonomic nervous system. You have the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight part of your nervous system, which raises your blood pressure, increases blood glucose utilization, et cetera, all of which drive chronic disease in the long term and in the extreme. You also have the parasympathetic nervous system, the vagus nerve, the vegetative nerve, the heart slowing nerve. And it turns out the afferent vagus, the part of the vagus nerve that uh, uh, takes uh, information from the periphery, from your gut, from your uh, uh, liver, and transmits it back to the brain, is absolutely essential in terms of basically putting you to rest and reducing risk of chronic disease. This is one of the reasons why People meditate is because they're oh, they're upping their afferent vagus. Okay. So, so and that's helping calm them. It's helping lower their blood pressure and their blood glucose, and it is leading to contentment. So the afferent vagus drives serotonin production. So connection very important. So that's the first C. Second C, contribute. And that does not mean to your individual retirement account. Okay? <laughs> that means contribute outside of yourself. Right? So, you know, Habitat for Humanity or, you know, volunteering or something. Okay? If you are contributing to yourself, that's called greed. <laughs> if you're contributing to other people, that's called contribution or, you know, uh, 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 you know, altruism, yeah. volunteerism, you know, what, whatever. I'm staying with the program right here. I'm staying with the program that contributing to yourself is dopamine, contributing to others is serotonin. Exactly right. One is pleasure, one is happiness. That's exactly right. Taking versus giving. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, you can go, go to a casino and make money. That's dopamine. If you go to church and you give money, that's serotonin. Not the same. Okay. Um, you know, people always ask me, you know, the most important question in today's day and age, can you derive your contribution through your work? And the answer is yes, you can. Provided two uh, uh, criteria are met. Number one, you can see how your work helps others. And number two, your boss can see it too. Very good point. If neither, if either or both of those are not true, then you ain't going to get it out of work. Mm -hmm. I get it out of work. 
you know, I mean, I do other things too, but that's where I get my contribution by seeing how my work ultimately helps others. Yeah, I wrote a, a couple of business books over the years. And one of the things I said that one of the things that truly makes people happy at work, even more than salary increases, which they, everybody says they want, but that again, just fuels uh, reward, fuels uh, 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 dopamine. What the thing that really makes people truly happy is when they people know their managers pat them on the back and they're recognized for doing a good job, and especially if it's something that is for the greater good. So uh, got it, got it. So that's second C. Third C, cope. And cope is three things. Sleep, mindfulness, exercise. Sleep, mindfulness, exercise. And the reason is because every one of those reduces cortisol. Okay. So it turns out 35% of the adult population are sleep deprived, get less than seven hours of sleep per night. And 23% are clinical insomniacs. That's a frighteningly high number. Unbelievable. High. And what happens when you're sleep deprived is your ghrelin, which is your hunger hormone, goes up. So you eat more, which lowers your serotonin. And of course, your cortisol goes up. And so it's driving that unhappiness and metabolic syndrome. So sleep is essential. The problem is we have created a sleep-deprived environment. Okay? We got this thing. Got it? (laughs) Okay. That is the ultimate sleep-depriver. For those that are listening and not watching, uh, uh, Rob's just lifted up a mobile phone and... uh, He's blamed for a lot of interruptions, which I totally get. <laughs> you know, it, and it's the blue screen, if nothing else. You know, so um, my colleague Chris Matson at UC Berkeley uh, did a quick study showing that kids who charge their cell phone in their room get 28 minutes less sleep per night than kids who charge their cell phone outside their room. Crikey. Well, you know, what I'm doing? you know what I'm doing when I get home this evening? <laughs> yeah, I do. Making sure all the kids charge their mobile phones downstairs because that's a... And, and what they need to do is they need to stop using screens one hour before bedtime. No screens. That includes television as well, laptops, computers. Television, all, all screens. Okay. Paper, fine. You know, books, fine. But no screens. One hour before. Something to do with the screens causing us not to sleep, or is it detrimental to the production of serotonin? It's detrimental to the production of serotonin by itself. Okay. Number two, mindfulness. Now, the dirtiest word in the English language is multitasking. And the reason is because nobody can do it. Only 2.5% of the population can actually multitask. The rest of us are serially unitasking. And every time we switch from one task to another, we get a cortisol bump and it takes 23 minutes to refocus. So we're losing all that time. So this concept of multitasking, I mean, you can't get a job today if you can't multitask. On the other hand, it's exactly the multitasking that's going to ultimately make you not be able to work at that job. So this is truly, you know, on its head. And we have to undo this concept. And, and 
sorry to keep interrupting, Rob. Does that does that also mean that? Because I I read recently, in fact, I wrote about it uh, recently. Um, that people are saying that kids that use their mobile all the time that keep getting interrupted will eventually have an IQ probably 10% lower because they can't concentrate on the task at hand. You know, you and I, if we're not using our mobiles, can read a book and concentrate for a long period of time. But if the mobile keeps interrupting and ringing and Facebook likes and, and whatever and Instagram or whatever it is these days, that by itself is interrupting you. Therefore, you're trying to multitask when that's not possible. Right. So I've heard that, but I haven't seen the data that support that. What I do know is that it, the, the, those constant interruptions definitely alters prefrontal cortical activity. That I do know because we have the data for that. And the thinner your prefrontal cortex, the bigger the problem with executive function and the bigger problem also with obesity. Paper just came out just uh, this week uh, demonstrating that. Okay. So uh, mindfulness is essential. And of course, how do you teach mindfulness to you know five-year-olds? Well, you know, it's a problem, but I'll tell you, if you're handing an iPad to your 15-month-old to shut them up, you're not helping the matter. Which is, of course, you know, the iPad has turned into the mobile babysitter. So we, we you know, this is a problem as well. And then finally, exercise. And I have a confession, I've done it. I've been there. Uh, well, you know, I, I understand, you know, the point is we now have the data to show the folly of that uh, practice, but will people actually do something different recognizing it? And the answer is, I don't know. I'm worried about that. Sure. And then finally, exercise. And it turns out exercise is as good as SSRIs, you know, re serotonin reuptake inhibitors, at treating depression. And if you couple mindfulness and exercise, you can basically reverse depression. Mm -hmm. So even though exercise will often give you short uh, bouts of stress when you're weight training or sprinting, that short release of cortisol isn't a bad thing you're talking about, sort of sustained cortisol as being a bad thing. Exactly. Short bursts of cortisol are not really a problem. It's the long sustained cortisol that goes basically into the nighttime. That is the big problem. Okay. Because that's raising blood glucose at a time when it shouldn't be. And also, cortisol kills hippocampal neurons. Well known phenomenon. Robert Sapolsky, you know, showed this back in the 1980s. So, cortisol is not your friend. You know, that's what ultimately, I mean, it gets you out of bed, but it's not your friend. It's good and bad, like everything. And then finally, the fourth C cook. So there are three things in food that matter for this. Tryptophan. So tryptophan is an amino acid. It is the rarest amino acid. It is the amino acid in shortest supply. It is the precursor of serotonin. So if you're not getting a tryp enough tryptophan, you're not getting making enough serotonin. So where do you get tryptophan? So number one, by far and away, eggs. Highest concentration of tryptophan. Next, poultry, salmon, flax. Uh, sorry, not flax. I took, I took poultry, salmon, mostly. Uh, and, uh, you know, vegetables, not very much. Not very much tryptophan. Uh, so you need those things. But, you know, every, the world's going vegan. This is not necessarily good because you're not getting enough tryptophan. Um, uh, Omega-3s. 
So omega-3 fatty acids are heart-healthy, anti-inflammatory, anti-Alzheimer's. They're also membrane stabilizers, especially in the brain, especially in the neurons of your brain. They reduce uh, inflammation and they also help signal transduction. And they are associated with salmon, flax, you know, marine, marine life mostly. Uh, and, you know, we're not getting enough of those either. And then finally, too much sugar. So fructose, because it drives dopamine, also lowers serotonin, as I said before. So what you want is a high tryptophan, high omega-3, low fructose diet. And, and why particularly fructose? You keep saying fructose, which you mainly get from fruit. Uh, and you're not saying glucose. Why, why, why fructose? And why, why are you focusing on fructose as more of the problem than just glucose? <clears throat> so sugar, dietary sugar, sucrose, you know, cane sugar, beet sugar, the stuff you put in your coffee, those white crystals are two molecules bound together. One's called glucose, one called fructose. Now, glucose is not very sweet. Molasses is glucose. Now, is molasses sweet? Mm, a little bit, you know, not, not exciting. You don't, people see, you don't see people going around chugging caro syrup or anything, you know. I mean, you know, molasses is okay, but it, it, it's not a big seller, not a big winner, you know, mm -hmm. maybe for a special cookie or something, you know. <laughs> All right, glucose, what's in molasses, is the energy of life. Every cell on the planet burns glucose for energy. Glucose is so goddamn important that if you don't consume it, your body makes it. The Inuit, the Eskimos, okay, they didn't have a place to grow a carbohydrate. They didn't have any carbohydrate in their diet. They had whale blubber. You know, they had ice. Okay, They still had a serum glucose level. And the reason is because the liver can take fats and proteins and turn it into glucose for energy. So even though they did not consume any glucose, they still had a blood glucose level because their liver would make it because glucose is so important that you can't not make it. And is, right? that, the word, is that the word lipogenesis, making fat, new fat out of, out of sugars? Yes, but when you're consuming glucose, there's not a real reason to need to do that. Now, fructose, that other molecule in sugar, the one bound to it, it is very sweet. It's the reason we like sugar. It's the reason we crave sugar because it is addictive. It goes to that reward center and activates it. Glucose does not. So fructose is the addictive component of sugar. Turns out fructose is completely vestigial to all animal life. It is a holdover from our plant ancestors. It is how plants stored energy. That's why fruit has sugar. In it. And, and for plants, it's probably fine. <laughs> for us, you know, we have a limited capacity to metabolize it. Our livers have to metabolize it because fructose does not enter any other cell because it doesn't have, the other cells don't have that transporter. So basically when you, take a fructose load, like a Coca-Cola, basically it's all going to your liver. And the liver gets overwhelmed. The liver has a, an innate capacity to metabolize fructose, that's true. 
but it's fixed. There are a few things you can do to manipulate it, like exercise will up your uh, capacity to metabolize. Um, but basically, it's fixed. And if you overwhelm your liver's capacity to metabolize the fructose, the liver doesn't know what to do with the rest because it's fixed. So what happens is the liver will turn that extra fructose into fat. And that's the process you were referring to called de novo lipogenesis, new fat making. And then that fat has one of two fates. It can either be exported out of the liver, in which case now you've got the substrate for obesity and for heart disease, or it will precipitate in the liver, not make it out of the liver. Now you've got a lipid droplet. Now you've got that fatty liver disease I was talking about earlier. And now you have liver dysfunction, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome. So if I'm getting this, if I'm getting this straight, when you have the fructose, which you get 50, half of your table sugar is fructose, or high concentrations in high corn uh, syrups and obviously in, in fruits, it gets into the liver, but it never comes out of sugar. That's why we don't have fructose blood monitors. We have glucose blood monitors. It does something with it. It either keeps it itself, makes fatty liver, or bundles it up, sends it out as fat because it never sends it into the bloodstream as a sugar. Is that right? That's right. It doesn't send it out as a sugar because the rest of your body can't metabolize fructose. Now, we don't have serum fructose levels because most of the time our serum fructose level is zero unless you overwhelm your liver. Okay. So no one's looking for that. It is a research test. It is a research tool to measure fructose in the blood. So normally if I, if, if I measured your fructose level right now, it would probably be zero. Mine would be zero too. But if I drank a Coke, it wouldn't be zero. And the question is, that fructose level, it does more damage than the glucose ever did. And the reason is because fructose binds to proteins and causes those proteins to stiffen up. If they're in the arterial tree, that's atherosclerosis. If they're in, you know, uh, elsewhere, like in the liver, it can cause liver dysfunction and death. Ultimately, these are the phenomena that are associated with chronic disease. So you can think of fructose as the aging compound. It is the cause of wrinkles. Wow. Wow. So many people have lots of fruit thinking it's good for absolutely everything. And maybe a little bit of fruit on its own isn't too bad. But certainly if you're taking a lot of fruit and drinking Coke, all that fruit is doing is compounding the problem. Well, I'm not, I'm not really against fruit per se. Fruit has lots of other things in it too. But the main thing that fruit has in it is fiber. Now, fiber is what makes fruit okay. Okay, the fructose is what makes fruit enjoyable, but the fiber is what makes uh, fruit uh, healthy. And the reason is because when you consume fruit, the fructose is not actually being absorbed completely. The fiber is setting up a gel on the inside of your intestine. So you need both fibers, insoluble and soluble. And fruit, of course, has both. And what's happening is you're setting up a lattice work on the inside of your intestine. The cellulose is setting up like a fishnet. And the, ins and the soluble fiber, like the pectins and the uh, inulin, are plugging the holes in that lattice work to provide this gel 
which is then reducing the rate of absorption. So it is protecting your liver. Well, if you don't absorb it early, then it goes further down the intestine where the microbiome, the bacteria will chew it up instead. So even though you consumed it, you didn't get it because your bacteria did. So the two rules of diet, which people do not understand, but I am actually writing a book about right now, is protect the liver, feed the gut. Foods that do both, protect the liver and feed the gut, are healthy. Foods that do neither are unhealthy. Foods that do one or the other, but not both, are in the middle. Okay, that's really, really, really interesting. And what's the new book going to be called, Rob? Don't know yet. <laughs> when you give it to a publisher, they change the name on you. I don't have a name yet. <laughs> okay, so you don't know the name. Tell me about processed food. <laughs> okay, so we don't definitely know the name yet. But what we give us some examples of something that protects the liver and the gut. Give us some foods that fall into the best category. Um, well, anything with fiber. Okay. So fruit, fruit, fruit is fine. Now, fruit juice, you've strained the fiber out. You've destroyed the fiber, and you've, or if you've smoothied it, you've destroyed the insoluble fiber. So you have not protected the liver. Now, the soluble fiber is still there, so it may feed the gut. So fruit juice would be an example of something that's in between. Okay. But it's not healthy. It's just less unhealthy. And if you look at the data on fruit juice, it causes diabetes and cancer too. Just at a hot, you have to consume more than, say, a sugar soda. Yeah, we had a, a great dentist on the other day that was saying you just can't imagine the damage it does to, to cavities and the teeth as well. So maybe... Who was the dentist? Uh, you, you've met him uh, before, James Gulnick? Oh, yes, of course. Absolutely. Uh, very t- well, his main gripe was with bread and people not realising that if you have bread at breakfast, lunch and dinner, that instantly turns into sugar in the mouth and, 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 and causes cavities. Well, you know, yes, no. Um, it, it converts to glucose in the mouth. Glucose can be a source of fermentable carbohydrate, but often starch contributes to the biofilm. So that's not automatically apparent to me. Now, the thing that automatically causes dental caries is fructose, sugar. And the reason is because the primary bacteria that cause cavities, strep mutants, they are a fructose-eating machine. They love it, and they make lots of lactate, which burns a hole in the tooth. So um, starch, less so. Mm-hmm. Very Sugar, much more. Yeah, very interesting thought. So anything that's got fiber and that's natural and organic, so we're talking nuts, seeds, vegetables, there's some fiber. What's your view, view on things like glucomannan, which is a, a fiber that we're seeing in a lot of products these days? Glucomannan is a potential problem because it swells a lot and has actually caused deaths in two and three-year-olds because of the swelling. So there are candies that were made with glucomannan, which actually uh, lodge in the esophagus of children and, uh, and have caused death. So you have to be careful of glucomannan. Okay, so mainly just go for the natural fibers that we're getting in whole, natural, wholesome foods. Real food works, processed food doesn't. That's the 
you know, take home message of this new book is we have to rethink our food supply if we're going to solve our uh, metabolic health problem, our mental health problem, our economic problem, and our climate problem. I want to pick up on something. In fact, that's a very bit I want to speak upon. You mentioned it earlier. You just finished on that sentence there. Solve our environmental problem. How do you see the link of eating well solving the environmental issues? So people talk about greenhouse gases like they're all the same. They're not. Turns out there are three greenhouse gases, not one. The only greenhouse gas anyone's talking about is methane. That's a mistake. Here's why. There are three greenhouse gases. Number one, carbon dioxide. All right, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. It has a re heat retaining capacity of one. Now, you need carbon dioxide because that's what the plants use to make sugar and oxygen called photosynthesis. So if you wiped out all the carbon dioxide, we'd die too. Now, it's true, we have too much carbon dioxide. That's true. And it does retain heat. That's true. And so it is a problem. I'm not suggesting it's not. It is a problem. But you need carbon dioxide. Second greenhouse gas, methane. Yes, methane is a problem. No argument. It, is, it has a heat retaining capacity of 25. Carbon dioxide, one. Methane, 25. Way worse. No argument. And animals make methane. Sure. Ruminants make more methane. True. That's why they want all the beef and the lamb out. The vegans want the beef and the lamb gone. Um, in addition, uh, grass-fed animals actually make more methane than corn-fed animals. So you'd say, well, wait a second. That's, you know, then we should corn-feed the animals. Well, not, not so much. You know, there's, a, there's other reasons why that's not a good idea. Um, the point is that the amount of methane that the uh, ruminants make is only about 5% of all the methane. And agriculture total is only about 9.0% of all the methane. Most of the methane is coming from industry and industrial sources, cars, etc., petroleum uh, cars, not the animals. So yes, the animals do contribute, but they are actually a relatively minor contributor. You know, let's focus on the things that are bigger contributors. And number three, get greenhouse gas. And this is the one people totally don't get and totally miss the point and basically makes the argument, nitrous oxide, laughing gas. Nitrous oxide has a heat retaining capacity of 210, nine times greater than methane. So where do you get nitrous oxide from? If it's not in a laughing gas canister at the dentist, where is it? Well, it's in every field. And the reason is because that's what happens to the nitrogen runoff from the nitrogen fertilizer that was needed to grow the crops because the animals who used to fertilize the crops because of their manure, because that's nitrogen fixing, now aren't there because the cattle are in Kansas and the corn's in Iowa. So you have to spray the corn with the nitrogen, which becomes nitrous oxide, which creates way more heat retaining capacity, way more greenhouse gas emissions than the methane ever did. And guess what? You have to do that for vegans too. 
you know, I'm glad you said that so, so passionately. We had Patrick Holden on uh, doing this interview a few weeks ago, who was the ex-director of the Sword Association, and he said exactly the same thing. He said this whole thing, uh, you know, he said if vegans want to be vegans and vegetarians because they don't want to eat meat yeah. for, for, for religious reasons or because they just love animals, that's fine. But he said if they're doing it for the planet, it's completely wrong. He said because... We've and if they're doing it for metabolic health, they're completely wrong. Yeah. And he said, because if you're doing it for to save the planet, no longer are we cycling those fields in the UK where, you know, we need the animals there to, to have, we need the grass to sequester the carbon. We right. need to then stop using uh, industrial fertilizers. And if we have organic grass-fed beef and organic grass-fed sheep, that's part of the solution, not part of the problem. Exactly right. And, of course, it will cost more, but the, and that will reduce consumption because, you know, re, uh, increasing the price reduces effective availability, which is the idea. Yes, we eat too much beef. I don't argue that. We do. I agree with that. That doesn't mean we should ban it. Yeah. What we need to do is let the market forces work. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, we have to stop the subsidies. And in order to stop the subsidies, we have to fix Washington and London. So, you know, this problem is real, okay, but it's man-made. It's been done out of this, con you know, policy directive and ultimately to make bad food cheap. And that, unfortunately, that bad food, it not only causes metabolic syndrome, but it also causes addiction and depression. Yeah, that is so, so true. Um I'm so glad you got that message out. I'm so, so glad yourself and Robert over the, um, and, and three or four others have said something. I'm so get, glad you're getting that out. Let the vegetarians decide what they want to eat based on the facts and the vegans on the facts and not some. You know, I'm, I'm not against veganism. Yeah. If the vegans want to be vegan, fine. No yeah. Problem. You can do what you want. I mean, if the keto people want to be keto, that's fine too. Yeah. I have no problem. And the fact of the matter is the vegans and the ketos are actually in agreement. They think they're in a war. The fact of the matter is they're actually on the same side. What makes you think that? They're on the side against the processed food industry. Very good point. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. Okay. If they would stop battling each other and start battling the real enemy, we would solve this problem. And that, you believe, firmly is the processed foods, because that correlation between uh, demise into all these metabolic illnesses uh, and the rise of processed foods all at the same time, and all the other thoughts about. Exactly. Um, so I want to just pick up on one one or two last things, if we could. Uh, the hour's gone to flown by. Um, as you know, I mentioned earlier, I've got seven children. Uh, and, you know, well, they're all quite young. Um, and they are definitely overusing social media and the computers. And they are probably, you know, not going out and playing outside with their friends and having that social interaction, which you talked about earlier on being so important face to face. They are sitting there waiting for, you know, the, the computer games to light up and their friends to come online and they think they're doing just as good and having such a good time overusing the computers. I personally was one of those dads that did what you said earlier, which had certainly my youngest one grow up and been shoved a laptop and the iPad in front in restaurants so that we could have a quiet meal. 
Give me some things I can go back to my children and say, look, these are some of the reasons why it's really advisable to cut back on all that digital use and get back to what we were doing some generations back. Right. Very simple. It's called creativity. Creativity requires a prefrontal cortex. Creativity requires your whole brain working. And what digital media does is it cuts your prefrontal cortex off from the rest of you and makes everything immediate and makes it, it stymies imagination, it stymies creativity. Okay? Because you're seeing something instead of imagining it. That's and this is why kids are getting stupid. Yeah. And we're seeing it. We're seeing, and it's been going on since TV, you know, but it's, it's, you know, really revved up since the internet generation. No, that's, that's great advice. Thank you very, very much. Um, and finally, I ask this of all doctors, all export, uh, experts, as we come towards the end of our, uh, our hour together, give us your top five tips, and they don't have to be in order, but if you can try and prioritize towards the top, What's the five tips that, that you have, Robert, for what you'd tell your friends, your loved ones, to help them live healthier and happier for longer? Uh, number I one, happier, not pleasure for longer. <laughs> number one, by far and away, eat real food. Okay? And that means food that came out of the ground or animals that ate what came out of the ground. That's Number one, and it's really number one through five, all, all rolled up into one. Yeah. Um, you want some others? Sure. <laughs> um, but that, I mean, that's out there on its own, is it? That's in bold capitals. That's underlying. Right. That's, that's number, that's by far and away number one. Okay. Uh, the next thing uh, I would argue is that you need to take time for yourself. Okay. And people don't know what that means. That means get inside your own head, whether that be meditation, yoga, or a good book, exercise that prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. make it work. Okay. Cause that's what separates you from the lizards. And if you use your prefrontal cortex, you will tamp down on the five behavioral health disasters that we have befallen as a society. The prefrontal cortex inhibits the nucleus accumbens. That's addiction. The prefrontal cortex inhibits the dorsal raphe. That's depression. The prefrontal cortex inhibits the amygdala. That's anxiety. The prefrontal cortex inhibits the associative cortex that's ADD and inattention. And finally, the prefrontal cortex inhibits the insula, different part of the limbic system. That's xenophobia and hate. Wow. Those five problems, addiction, depression, anxiety, ADD, and hate, are what have blossomed all over the world over the past, really, 20 years. Correct. The prefrontal cortex is the reason that because it's not working, that all of these have occurred. Exercise your prefrontal cortex. Read a friggin' book. That's just great, great advice. And 
because you passionately said number one and number two, and I normally ask for five, that's kind of the big, big bit. That's enough. <laughs> yeah, let's stop there. Let's stop there. Um, look, it's been a fascinating hour. The, the final question I ask every doctor, every professor that comes on, what would Robert Lustig like his legacy to be? Um, I would like my legacy to be that this problem goes away. And, 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 and the problem being, define what you, what you think the problem is. I would, uh, the, the problem is the problem I have just described. The problem of healthcare, health, diet, addiction, depression, climate change, all rolled up into one because it's really all one problem. It's called hedonics and consumerism. It's called taking your prefrontal cortex offline. That's a great place to finish. Robert, thank you very, very much. Uh, I've really enjoyed the hour, I hope you have too. And uh, for those that haven't read your book yet, that hacking of the American mind, which you said at the very beginning, literally could be the hacking of anybody's mind in a consumerism world, whether that be right. America, the UK, Germany, China, even China now and India. Anybody that's affected by corporatization, this will tell you what they're doing to your brains and the steps you need to unravel the mess that we're all in now. Robert, thank you very, very much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Steve. It's been my pleasure. If you enjoyed the podcast and would also like to watch it online, you can find a webcam version on YouTube or the Primal Living website, www.primalliving.com. The Fat and Furious podcast is the perfect introduction to helping you and those you love live happier and healthier for longer. And if you are a fan of the series, then please let your friends and family know. They'll truly thank you for it, and so will we. Until next time, live life naturally.